0: Everyone and welcome to Girls Gone Canon reads the Book of Dust, episode seven, La Belle Sauvage, chapters eighteen through 20. I am one of your hosts, Eliana.
1: I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. I'm I'm. This is some chunky stuff. We're getting into the heart of this story, and I'm really excited. But there's another story. With a missing heart, may I say, that I'm excited to talk about in the upcoming month. If you're listening to this, it could be the end of March of 2021 when it's released. It could be April 2021. It could be years from now, I hope. I mean, if it lasts that long, good. Good for us. But uh, if you're listening to this next month, we will be putting out a very special Patreon episode.
0: Yes, we will. Next month, our Patreon episode is going to be, of course, His Dark Materials. We switch off every month. This current month of March, we are we did in the Song of Ice and Fire episode. But next month is His Dark Materials, uh, the show, in fact. We are doing the Lost episode.
1: Yes, this is the episode Nicolas Cage threw into the ocean. Okay, he threw this off of the deck of the Titanic. This is the episode... No, I'm just kidding. I'm so sorry. I'm just a big, crazy liar right now. But Azriel's Big Day Out is the theme, right? There was an episode in Series 2. It was the very last episode uh, that we thought we were going to get, but it didn't happen. Turns out it wasn't actually the last episode. It was going to go bloop, kind of in the middle of the season. You're going to learn more about it in that episode if you're a patron in our $5 tier and up, our Stranger Tier and up. We'll be talking about this bottle episode where Asriel kind of uh, does some world building, so to speak.
0: World building is a way to put what Asriel does. But Mm -hmm. yes, we are going to be trying to figure out, you know, what happened during that day? What what were the plans? This is, of course, an episode that was going to be written for the television show that sort of expands on what they think Asriel might have done. Uh, we'll We'll, of course, tell you a bit more later. And as for the books though, we are hoping to finish up La Belle Sauvage by June. And then I don't know, maybe some some stuff is gonna happen.
1: Yeah, some pretty dusty stuff is going on at Girls Gone Canon Inc. Girls Gone Canon Double LC. Girls Gone Canon anyways, so some stuff is happening. At Girls Gone Canon. This stuff includes a new book. In the His Dark Materials series, coming to you, coming to your ears. Some dusty stuff. Very dusty. Live dusty, die trying. So
0: I guess we'll tell you about that later. I mean, I think a couple of you can guess it. A couple of interesting surprises that we've got in store as we wrap up La Belle Sauvage that we are excited about, but again, not yet, not yet letting you all know. Perhaps if you have an alethiometer at home, you can discern what our plans are. But until then, we are still here in chapters 18 19 and 20 that's lord murderer the poacher and the sisters of holy obedience and of course if you are tuning into this episode please be warned that we do cover spoilers for all three of the main his dark materials books and for the entirety of Belle Sauvage. anything that we are going to discuss in regards to the secret commonwealth will be behind a discussion but i'm not sure if we will have a discussion this episode
1: Yes, and don't forget about those novellas if you have read Once Upon a Time in the North, Lyra's Oxford, Serpentine. We're going to be talking about those, even the collectors. We might not reference them in full, but just so you know, you might hear some hints. Yes, we are in those three chapters, and we're going to start it off with a a crazy one, right? A couple suspenseful Mm -hmm. chapters. Lord Murderer, Chapter 18. The countryside is underwater, and Malcolm expects the water to be salty to the taste, but it isn't. It's not very good water either, but there's not a single bit of salt to be found within it.
0: Alice asks Malcolm how long it would take to paddle the river to London without the flood, and Malcolm thinks it would take a few days. But with this current, he thinks it might just take them only one day to get to London. I'm like, that's very convenient, isn't it? That's very convenient for the story. <laughs> <sighs> oh, there goes the plot,
1: paddling across the screen.
0: <sighs> Alice and Malcolm tend to Lyra, Asta is curious about Pan, and has been theorizing that whenever Pan was a butterfly, perhaps Lyra was dreaming.
1: I love this, they have their very own demon corner, just like us, right? <laughs> just like what we do here. I looked back, so I was kind of curious if this is something across the story, maybe Lyra and Pan have had this even, you know, in the the main trilogy, but not really, not really a big thing. This is the first mention of Pan being a butterfly. Later in the chapter, Asta flips into a butterfly when they're scared. Pan doesn't become a butterfly again until they're with the fairy. The only time we see Pan become a butterfly, actually, which maybe this is connected in a way, is when they're first meeting Will, fluttering in the fridge as she's kind of looking around in the fridge. Uh, But otherwise... It's just not a common form for Pan since now this kind of feels more like foreshadowing for the upcoming meeting on the little fairy isle.
0: Ah, huh. that's an interesting idea. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I think I, I remember Pan being a moth more than being a butterfly, right? And when he's a moth, he's usually concealing how he feels, and that's a very different thing than than what's going on with butterflies.
1: And that is transformation, right? Like in a way, this is a, a metaphor for transformation as a butterfly. Uh, yes. So. That's interesting. Yeah. Especially with the fairy magic afoot.
0: Yeah. And how that might change things for Lyra. But like you, perhaps, Malcolm is skeptical <laughs> because neither of them can prove it, because you know, in terms of what happens when demons, uh especially children's demons, right? Uh if do they change while the child is asleep? Malcolm and Asta have tried to kind of figure it out, but then turns out they don't know because they're both asleep. (laughs) That's how it goes. He had wanted to mention it to Alice, but her, in quotes, bottomless scorn has put him off right now because she's understandably still mad at him for not telling her his plans. And while Asta and Malcolm discuss, Alice points out that a man in a dinghy is rowing toward them. They're like, oh shit, it's Gerard with his demon in front, rowing fast. And the dinghy isn't as fast as La Belle Sauvage, but Gerard is like a whole adult man with like big muscles, so like off they go. <laughs> Fuck.
1: Uh, Malcolm's paddling so hard it hurts at this point, and Alice is keeping an eye on Gerard, but they'd have to stop and feed Lyra sooner or later and find somewhere to hide. They're in a broad valley, and they have a couple directions they can go. They make for a large classic house up on the right, and Malcolm paddles as fast as he can. There's smoke trailing from its chimney, which Alice thinks could be good for them, having witnesses there to see the children fight a grown-ass man. Malcolm isn't really as positive as her. He's like, "Mm, what if that's where his backup lives, by chance? He sees someone ahead in the trees, and as he's rowing, he realizes, like, he's very scared. He's like, oh, shit, now there's someone I have to deal with up there. And then he realizes, oh, I'm also exhausted right now. Like, we've been Mm -hmm. doing this for, oh, 16 to 22 hours straight. I'm exhausted.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been a very draining day for them, and we'll see the toll of that exhaustion a little later. It's, It's not, like, horrible. They just, like, go to sleep. But a man comes out of the trees, gesturing for them to leave, and Malcolm tells Alice to go tell him that they have a baby and need to rest, and she's like, why me? He says, because he'll take more notice of her, and I'm like, huh. Interesting. Interesting, uh, thought there, Malcolm? Hmm,
1: a little interesting. Interesting interesting and um i want you to understand that when i say interesting it's actually a euphemism for misogynistic yeah (gasps) (laughs) this is some really good you know details some facts on the podcast that's what i really mean
0: yeah same same (sighs) yeah anyway so while alice talks to the shouting man malcolm retrieves lyra she's unhappy and stinky and cold (laughs) <laughs> and he thinks it must be nice to be a baby, but I don't know. I don't know that it's so nice right now. Not so much. I mean, I don't think I love being cold and, like, sitting in my own shit, but and thankfully I have no memories of that time, which- Like, you know, getting a
1: rash. Not.
0: In regards to childhood. Swamp yeah, that's ass. true. That's true. Flood ass, perhaps.
1: <laughs>
0: Malcolm can unfortunately <laughs> see Gerard in the distance against the gray sky and then kisses Lyra's forehead. Self-consciously. Not
1: subconsciously. Self-consciously. Self-consciously. As in he's conscious of himself. That was the wording. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting.
0: I, he, he I just, don't know like, what awkward. that he's means. Like, I guess it's supposed to be like, you know, he's like feels awkward. He's like, I'm going to calm this baby down by kissing it on the forehead. I'm like, I
1: don't know. Yeah, but really he's calming himself down more than anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: he says they'll keep her safe.
1: And he'd get her warm and get her milk soon. And then he starts to say, if your mummy was here. And then he's like, oh, shit, you don't have a mom, lol. Ha ha ha, you never have. So he starts to invent a little story for Lyra, which I don't know. Maybe this is why
0: she lies so much, right?
1: It's Malcolm's <gasps> fault.
0: Yeah, Malcolm has been quite quite the tail spinner throughout this book. <laughs> and he here's the tale that he tells Lyra. The Lord Chancellor found you under a bush, and he thought, Blimey, I can't look after a baby. I better take her to the Sisters at Godstow. So, then it was Sister Fenella who looked after you. I bet you remember her. She's a nice old lady, isn't she? And then the flood came, and we had to take you away in La Belle Sauvage to keep you safe. I wonder if you'll remember any of this. Probably not. I can't remember anything from when I was a baby. Look, here comes Alice. Let's see what she says.
1: Oh, and he's all probably just, you know, bouncing her. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) trying to calm her down. Uh, I will say, I just don't know if it's fair for Malcolm to say that Lyra never had a mummy. Like, I mean, she's obviously not mom of the year, as we find out later on, but I'm just like... Again, as we've said in previous episodes, Marisa tried hard. Like, do you know how many children she had to corrupt and how many people's (laughs) lives she had to ruin through the corruption of those children and how many people lost their jobs just so that she could get to her daughter? I'm just (laughs) saying. It's it's so interesting, actually, that you think
1: about her in this, though, because while you read this to me, uh, you inspire me so, first of all, Thanks. Second of all, when you read this to me, it made me think of Asriel, actually, not Marisa, mm-hmm. even though he's talking about the mummy and, you know, this, that. And later I have a comment that we'll talk about with Ma Costa maybe being like a semi-reliable narrator on some things, right? Because she might not have been as like around in some of the events. And also this might be kind of some, some fallacy of Pullman just making some stuff up now, getting some plot going, writing some fun stuff, but... Remember how Lyra remembers gunshots?
0: <laughs> Doesn't she just And say she made she up does? that her
1: dad had guns?
0: Oh. Oh What if yeah. she's
1: remembering this? There are gunshots that are about to come up, are there not?
0: There are. That's interesting.
1: I never um, thought of this until right now. You inspired me so, but what if that's where that comes from? Yeah, I don't know. I do uh I do like what you were saying about the Marisa stuff because that is true. She also Like, obviously, she, like we see Asriel later do, chooses power over her daughter many times, but it's something that, and the show has done a great job of exploring this, in my opinion, some beautiful award-winning, just give her an award. Give Ruth an award.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Just do it already, idiots. But (laughs) some, some great groundwork that gets explored of, like, what Marisa gave up and when, on the edge of the abyss, what she chose the first time. Compared to the last time, you know, like those are very big different things, and she changes and evolves throughout the story. Uh, And I'm not saying she does great things to get there, like you said. You know, how many children does she have to murder to get to her own? Uh, It's a very toxic, poisonous, literally poisonous, and some other themes we're going to explore in the next two chapters of Poison. Uh, A poisonous display of her relationship with Lyra, but she still loves her.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that. Even within the main trilogy, Pullman did a great job of setting that all up and demonstrating that and showing that. Um, And and I like that we're sort of seeing that from a sideways view. I mean, we do see Marisa literally in in this book earlier on, but I, I like the way that he's still exploring her character and her motivations, even without her being there. She's such a looming presence, and I think he's just done such a fantastic job with Mrs. Coulter's character.
1: Yeah, I mean, she still came to Hannah Ralph's. Yeah, looking, she knew I, that, she knew that Lyra I, was near.
0: Yeah, I, I really just feel she's maligned in in many ways. I mean, just like he's all like, "Oh, well, you don't have a mummy," but like, why isn't he like, "Oh, isn't it sad that your like dad also wasn't really here?" I mean, they both came looking.
1: I know. I think it's because the interaction was much more positive that Azriel was given than. What Coulter was given, and I think it's a misunderstanding. Like Malcolm, uh you know how the witch with Will is all like you could never understand and like we're all yeah. like us either because it's written badly. Um but, <laughs> but I get it, you know, I get we still get kind of the sentiment behind it. There is a sentiment that's somewhat understandable, if not murky, through the themes, and I think this is kind of one of those two, like Malcolm is just too young to get it. He doesn't understand culture's pain and sacrifice and what's playing at both sides of her head of the institution and one side saying you know this is the only way you get power and agency in this world marisa is if you listen to us and obey us at the magisterium and do our bidding if you want your research and you want all these beautiful big things and then on the other side then it's that internal instinct of like you know being a mother to lyra and having those years that she can never have back in that life that she could never be given back you know
0: yeah she just like wasn't allowed to have it all right she couldn't have mm-hmm. she couldn't be sexual sexy right and have her research and have power and be a mother she couldn't have also, all like, those things and i think she she even then the story
1: eve that's the other thing is yeah. like she's directly working for the baddies after birthing their enemy and having to stay in their good graces i mean she just has to live such a double life it's It's not unlike Snape in a few ways, like not to, you know, not to bring up that and obviously disregarding some of those negative factors, but it's not unlike that and that double life villain who, you know, evolves and changes in the end.
0: Well, I just think it's interesting that she's not allowed to have all things, but it almost feels like Mm -hmm. the thing that she's most not allowed to that precludes her from having all of those things, especially is because she is also portrayed again very sexually right and hannah ralph right she's allowed to have a career she's allowed to have power but yet she's not allowed to have romantic love if she's going to be a motherly figure to an extent to some of these characters she doesn't get to have romantic love and i don't know that she like has to but it's interesting that she doesn't get to it's interesting that also another character that we see in this book what we kind of see in the main series and who does show up in in the second book also has a motherly role yet Mm -hmm. the romantic aspect of her life is kind of taken away from her in order to have that romantic role it's as though there's a there's a kind of like feeling that sexuality and and motherliness can almost almost aren't allowed to coexist within a character And we see that even in Serafina, right? She's She is very powerful and sexual, and, and the witches are, but yet her son is taken from her. Punished, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it is certainly unfair,
1: in my opinion, on the weighing of characters, you know? Like, yeah, and I mean, she's more than that,
0: and again, the series <laughs> no, does a I good agree. job of exploring that, right? But yeah. that the world, that the, their world, it seems like, don't allow women to yeah. do that.
1: these parameters are really rough for characters, and some of it does feel for the world and for the time that he's writing, but at the same time, some of it does feel a little boxed in, as we see with Alice's treatment throughout the rest of the series, in my opinion.
0: Well, back to young Malcolm Polstead.
1: Yeah. Young Malcolm's just doing the best he can with what he's got, right? He, uh, He's learned, he's picked up tricks. We're going to explore those tricks as we go, some of the pub tricks he's picked up of chit-chat. And right now, he's just doing the best he can, and as he and Alice are getting off, ready to go talk to this guy they saw, he comes out of the woods to them and apparently tells Alice, you can't stay here long. And she's like, he looks kind of weird. No one else is here, Malcolm, that I saw. Malcolm hands Lyra to her. Classic move. He goes to hide the canoe. His arms are trembling with fatigue. And then he heads in with the supplies that they need for Lyra. The man lingers at the door with his mastiff demon telling them they ain't staying long. He begins to compliment the man's house, and he's like, oh, nice digs. Did you uh, did you buy this, or, or did you fight for it? And the man at first is put off, but Malcolm's like, no, 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 I know where to take this. Shh, I got this, I got this. You know, hyping himself up. He's like, listen, listen, let me talk to you about this house, sir.
0: Yeah, I love this because, uh, Malcolm's able to do this because he realizes the man is drunk and he's like, he knows how to deal with drunks. <laughs> and I, I think that this was such a smart, great way to weave in Malcolm's experience from working at the Trout. Now he's learning to apply that experience in different places. And it, it is interesting, though, also that Malcolm just sort of, in a way, manipulates this man. It almost feels like he's casting a spell on this guy to act as their protector. And, and I say that because, you know, as we're going to see, more of that magical element is going to start coming through uh, in these chapters.
1: Yeah. Uh, Malcolm even goes on to say, it's like a castle. And, you know, you could defend this easily. Not not that anyone would want to attack it, of course. But if, if they did, you'd be safe. Then he's like does it have a name it looks like a manor or maybe a palace and you should call it after yourself and put a sign up you know maybe a sign at the water it's nothing big just a small one that says keep out trespassers will be prosecuted and through this he's like you know everything's different i wouldn't be surprised if you had had to fight for this place it's different now if you fought for it it belongs to you no doubt no doubt about it
0: I love that Malcolm's just playing up. He's like, go full prepper. Go full doomsday prepper on this guy. On. And of course,
1: this whole time, the whole idea is Gerard Bonvi is edging forward, right? Like, he's not getting farther away. He's getting closer. So Malcolm himself is like, all right, I gotta, I gotta really execute it now. And he's like, you know, like that man out there in the dinghy. If that man landed and tried to take this house away from you, it's brilliant. Uh, It's Pullman at his best writing Young Mischief. It's a favorite, right, in these books, whether it's Lyra in her joking war with Egyptian children or Malcolm manipulating this guy into protecting the property as if it's his own, as well as uh, protecting the children as if he's, it's their children, it's classic. As you move through these chapters, they kind of have those elements of northern lights and golden compass to them. Even as we get into chapter 20 later, when Malcolm sneaks into the church, it has a lot of Bulvanger vibes, right? Uh, fake names and acting like he should be there. Well, no fake names. He doesn't give a name. But just like when she shows up in Bulvanger, is like, I'm Lizzie, uh, and just assimilates in to kind of intercept and spy on what's going on. Malcolm, Malcolm assimilates real quick.
0: Yeah, but he has been giving fake names throughout the story to a couple of folks, mm-hmm. so that that is definitely in there.
1: Should have done it to more.
0: <laughs> it's kinda hard to the people who like already knew you, but yeah. The man here, though, has a shotgun and Nakam's like, you know, that's good enough to protect them from Gerard Bonneville, and the man begins to think out loud about defending (laughs) his property, and Malcolm starts to come a little clean now that the guy's on their side explaining, like, oh, the man is after our sister, which disgusts the man, who is now full-on in adoption mode to protect Richard Sandra and the baby Ellie... Anna? Um... (laughs) Just the baby (laughs) Ellie. (laughs) Sorry, Ellie. Um yeah so he tells them to get inside and leave the man to him Malcolm warns him to be careful that Gerard might be dangerous and he's like I'm dangerous and goes outside with his gun famous last
1: words for real though (sighs) Malcolm goes to find Alice and Lyra staying quiet but listening for gunshots out on the water he finds Alice in the kitchen with Lyra freshly changed sitting on the table and he fills her in on what happened with the man they can stay here for a bit, and he's going to defend them against Bonvie. Alice prepares some milk for Lyra while Malcolm checks in on her and Pan. It's really cute. Lyra keeps dropping her biscuit, no. which Malcolm then hands back to her, and he sternly turns to Pan, and he's like, you should be telling her where her biscuit goes when she drops it.
0: <laughs> I also like, um, okay, I don't know about baby development. Like, is, are we at, like, hard food now?
1: I don't think Malcolm knows either.
0: Okay, I mean, I don't. I think she's
1: just nibbling. I think it's just something to keep her preoccupied, like an oral fixation, for the most part. You know, like holding on to a cookie and just like gnawing at it as your teeth come in. That's what I'd guess. I mean, she's what yeah. like six to twelve months in that range.
0: Kind of like a pacifier esque thing.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, and like it's used a lot. I've noticed to keep her quiet, right? Mm. Like keep her busy, preoccupied from getting upset.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those throughout these chapters. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what people do with babies, so. Just shut them up. I, I think. I, I, I think. Again, I don't know.
1: I don't know. Like, shit, and then we'll move you on.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: In response to this scolding, Pan becomes a bush baby. Unmoving, <laughs> silent, you know, very demure. Malcolm asks Alice his new favorite philosophical question that he's been thinking about, and he's like, how can Pan be a bush baby if he's never seen one?
0: So, I don't know if this is, like, this is something I just made up, because Malcolm's just like, how does Lyra know all these different animals? It it makes me think of, like, maybe an Adam and Eve thing, right? Because Adam named all the animals, and was like... Maybe maybe she just, like, intrinsically knows the animals, and it's part of that connection.
1: That's a nice connection. I do think, like, uh, obviously, Asta's like, I don't know, I always knew stuff. I could just be stuff. I never had to worry about knowing it. So yeah. I wonder if it's, like, I guess the answer to life, you know, and beings being connected.
0: Or maybe it comes back to the questions that he and Hannah Ralph were discussing earlier on in the book of, like, if... There were no bees and there were no honey. Would we ever know the concept of sweetness, right? So maybe people mm-hmm. are intrinsically more yes. understanding the concept, and and it harkens back to that. I think
1: I think that's uh, correct. I think that's what you're onto, because like it, it feels like one of those like if the tree falls in the forest was Panelym there to hear it kind of questions.
0: Yeah, or like the world of the true forms um, outside of Plato's cave.
1: Yes. And I do want to point out that the bush baby is very, uh it's not dissimilar to our favorite demon, right? Not dissimilar to Jesper in a few ways. It's, oh. it's a, they have a similar look. So, So I'm just putting it out there. Similar look, but actually very cute, very small, very kind of like ugly cute. I'm into it.
0: I like them. I, I actually was thinking that they remind me a little, I don't know if they're actually related, they remind me a little of lemurs, another mm-hmm. another demon you and I like, and Asta does turn into a lemur a couple of times this chapter.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is, it, it could be mimicry, you know, it could be, uh, we demons seem to communicate sometimes quietly, silently, and like differently than humans do. And they communicate, like, a lot of information in smaller amounts of time, it seems, right? Like, they understand Mm. each other much better. Demons immediately go to each other and they're like, oh, I talked to her demon. She told me this huge story about this, this, this in about two minutes. They're great, easy little exposition pieces. I like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I miss Jesper. I just want to say that.
1: I do, too. I do, too. Alice doesn't really give a fuck about the philosophy that Malcolm's asking about. And Alice is like, I don't care. What are we going to do if Bon V gets past that guy? And Malcolm's like, well, we're going to run or hide. Get out. Get away. And Alice is like, I'm not impressed with that, Malcolm. Uh, She sends him to go spy and find out what's going on. And she's like, don't let them see you. The hall's empty and he hears nothing. So he creeps over to the big windows. Asta gets there first, though, and... What they find is not pretty. The man that was going to protect them is lying in the grass. His head and his arms are in the water. His body's in the grass and he is not moving. And V's dinghy, empty, is next to him.
0: Yeah, shit's not good. I feel bad for this man. Alright, like... He was just kind of protecting it, this place and kind of protecting the kids a little. And I do think it's it stands out to me that Malcolm and Alice don't really think upon this man or feel any sort of remorse that, in my opinion, and this is, of course, arguable, but in my opinion, they had, like, a slight hand in this guy's death. Because, I mean, obviously, yeah, Bonneville killed him, but Malcolm sort of manipulated this man into going after Bonneville and... It, it's interesting to me, and granted of course part of it is the more visceral actions behind it that Malcolm feels more ill about having potentially killed Bonneville by stabbing him, and like I said because it, it's more active but he feels worse about that than this guy who had nothing to do with anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, It is kind of odd, and I, I think we'll talk more about like the trauma effect of everything going on, and I think it's because they had to, like, compartmentalize and wait because they still have mm-hmm. to deal with Bonvie. So uh, maybe the full effect of what's happening isn't there. But he does feel a lot of fear. He keeps waking up in fear throughout the next couple chapters and through, like, big great remorse of what they did, what they did. And I would argue that, like, it's probably repressed, you know? They mm-hmm. probably have repressed that they're the cause of this man's death because they're just trying to protect themselves. Yeah. I don't blame- I'm sure they're- that's part of what he's thinking of. We don't get Alice's point of view, obviously, on it, besides her, like, feeling awful and telling him, I know, don't don't speak about it now. <sighs>
0: yeah. And I guess, like, he's seen a lot of dead people in yeah. this book. Yeah. Well, there's no sign of the gun, unfortunately. Or Bonneville, Malcolm. <laughs> I was like nine one one. Hello, fuck! <laughs> and just peers out of the window, and he thinks he can see a small current of scarlet trailing from the man's throat. Cute, real cute. Like um, a Zack
1: Snyder film. My God, <laughs> gritty, dark.
0: Chloe actually really likes that film, y'all. Yeah, it was um, great. <laughs> Malcolm returns to Alice explaining the situation, thinking of looking for maybe another gun in this man's cabinet, Uh, though it turns out he also has no clue how he would use it. In Malcolm's panic, they find a trapdoor in the kitchen and candles on the shelf. Alice and Lyra head down first, cautiously, and Lyra and Pan are frightened and chirping because Pan is a bird and Lyra is just like herself. (laughs) Little chirper. (laughs) Chirp, chirp. Malcolm comes after, struggling with the trapdoor, but finally lets it down as quietly as he can.
1: Yes, he lights a candle for them, and Ben settles with Pan to calm him. The room is bitterly cold, a storeroom for veggies, and it leads into another cellar. Alice worries Bonvie could put something on the door to trap them, but Malcolm's like, there's no use freaking out about that. You know, there has to be another exit. The butler wouldn't have wanted to struggle with the trap door to get wine, so there's probably proper stairs somewhere. They just have to figure it out and make sure they don't die in the whole process. Of course, as they discuss this, they hear footsteps above, leisurely moving, pulling out a chair, they shush, they listen attentively. A minute of silence goes by and they move into the second storeroom. This one is for furniture, not food, and they move on to the next archway, lighting another candle and finding a heavy wooden door with iron hinges and a huge lock.
0: Malcolm examines the door closely, but a quiet voice then speaks to him from the other side. It's Zephania. No, it's Gerard Bonneville. His voice is low. He says he assumes Malcolm doesn't have the key to this door or he'd have come out already, which would be most unfortunate for him, Alice, and Lyra.
1: Uh, so suspenseful. Pullman's pulling out the guns here. I forgot how creepy crawly it is, right? Because this is the guy who just won't die, as we're again about to see happen.
0: He's like the translator. Uh, it-
1: very much so. He is a Terminator-esque villain, like I'm. I've come for Lyra Belacqua, you know. Like I must break you. Uh, some of this horror and suspense is in the original books, right? It's more sinister as the series progresses. In some manners, the child murder is like, ah, this is awful and creepy that you're torturing children. Uh, Pullman's not one to shy away from that kind of feeling and that scary suspensefulness. This book, ha- I have to remind myself how old Malcolm is, right? Because he is trying to be capable of manipulating a psycho killer here, right? Like, totally trying to figure it out, trying to puzzle this guy out as we're about to see through the door and play against him. And Gerard Bonvie knows he he's like an adult killer, right? Like, he's not just like <laughs> a, pra- a little boy practicing at being a spy. This is not what... I mean, as we know, Hannah did not want him to sign up for this, so... Gerard Bonvie is like an adult murderer, Lord Lord murderer. He he likes Lord Murdfort, Lord murderer for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And he knows what he's doing and saying to Malcolm. He's making subtle threats against Alice's well-being and Lyra's to elicit a response from Malcolm in hopes that he fucks up and says the wrong thing. Uh, in way of that, like when Lyra accidentally fucked up and said the wrong thing, right? With Will in the subtle knife with giving away that she was with Will, for example. Which, mm-hmm. it's not really her fault, in my opinion. People are evil. Um, I don't know. He's up against a real one here. A crazy motherfucker. It, it, this is not a game anymore. This is not just pretend spying and reading books at Dr. Ralph's on a Saturday. This is some real stuff, as we're about to get into with the battle sequence in a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, he he's a little out of his depth here, but he's doing the best he can. His heart is about to burst out of his chest and Asta begins to change. Lemur, butterfly, crow. Finally, Lemur, crouching on his shoulders, murmuring to him to not say a word. But Bonneville knows that he's there because he saw him talking to the house owner on the terrace. And Bonneville reminds him that this is an island and that his canoe could meet an accident and then they'd be marooned. And he carries on, <laughs> giving his whole villain speech, which is, Oddly, very, you know, confidential information and very personalized. And he tricks Malcolm into responding by asking, Can you see them, by the way? And Malcolm says, There's no one here but me and my demon. But Bonville disagrees.
1: I kind of just got the irony in that Bonville was like, Oh, would be a shame to get marooned, huh? And afterwards... When they finally get outside, he's like, would well, be a shame to get marooned, wouldn't it, V. <laughs> oh. I didn't really put that together that he threatened it and then Malcolm actually does it. Brilliant. Brilliant.
0: Yeah. He's like, oh, interesting idea. And oh, how the Let me just tables. copy your homework. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that, like, occurs to me now is, like, they're all like, where's the other stairs with the trapdoor? As he's explaining it, I'm like, there are no stairs. Because the children were murdered in there. There's only a trap door. <laughs> <And> <laughs> this a isn't a wine door. cellar. It wasn't wine. It was blood. Uh, That's all. I That occurred to me as we were going through that. I was like, oh. Yeah, well.
1: it's a trap door. Right. Yeah. And the door locks. Traps. Okay. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, uh, we have this speech with Bonvie and Malcolm and it's actually pretty chilling. I don't yes. mean her. You and she are the same being, naturally. I mean someone besides you.
0: Who, who do you mean then?
1: I hardly know where to start. There are spirits of the air and the earth to begin with. Once you learn to see them, you'll realize the world is thronged with them. And then in wicked places like this, there are night guests of many kinds.
0: Yeah, so we get to that part that we were talking about where Bonville asked come. so do you know the history of this manor? And tells him it belonged to Lord Murdstone, and we used to call him Lord Murderer because he would bring his victims here and dismember them alive, and they were children. The agony of those children was just too great, and it lingered in the air and soaked within the stonework. We have a line that he tells Malcolm of, there's no clean wind blowing through these cellars, Malcolm. The air you're breathing now was last in the lungs of those tortured children. And I, I disagree. I think that that's false. And that you would think that an experimental theologian would be smart enough to know that that isn't how air fucking works. That air is different air now. (sighs)
1: Ah, <sighs> well, you know, I guess we don't technically know, right? Like, to be fair, uh, it does seem like he could be bullshitting, right? Like, he could absolutely be bullshitting. Um I mean, like, if you had a storeroom of goods and veggies and food and wine and furniture, you'd probably want to lock it. So, I mean, there is a door with a lock, and if you worked there, you'd have the key. This guy could just be lying. Right. Like, first of all, I do want to state that as we go on, he's egging Malcolm on with it, right? Like, because again, he knows what gets a rise out of him murdering children. Uh, this gets a rise out of Malcolm because he's worried about Lyra and Alice. I almost forgot about these parts, especially like the children's souls are in agony in the air and they're in the stones. Wow. This is an interesting chapter, and I think the framework of the chapter first is something so important, because we start off this chapter with Malcolm trying to manipulate the man who was quote-unquote living at this manor, and he manipulates him into protecting them. Alice, Lyra, him, all by playing on, oh, if I was the owner, right, implying, oh, you're not the true owner, you're not the real man, man, riling him up to be like, well, maybe I am, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be. I'm going to be the real owner of this house, so there. But this exact idea gets used against Malcolm by Bon V. He's using a similar manipulation, but it's better. He's manipulating Malcolm by using the ownership of the building, saying that the last guy who owned this building was not a good guy. The last guy who owned this building used it for evil. This is what the real owner of the building would actually do, Malcolm. So where Malcolm started off being like, blah, 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 Bone killed that childlike manipulation. He's flipped it right back on Malcolm. This is what the owner did. This murder is what the owner did. And it, it has a lot of uh, a lot of Bullvanger vibes, right? Like lots of Bullvanger, mm. Bullvanger banger vibes going on of like torturing children and severing them and dismembering them. And it makes me wonder if maybe the person who did own this manor. If it was real, maybe they were doing that for, you know, dusty reasons. We don't know. We'll never know. Mm.
0: No, I mean, I think they were real. I just think that air moves. That it can't just all be the carbon dioxide that those children breathe anymore. Um, But I I believe it's real, and if so, then there's almost like a poetry to, it's a sad poetry, to the fact that the next owner of this building in fact died protecting children. And Yeah, I mean, beyond this part heralding to Bovanger, there's other parts later in these chapters. There's a lot of things about hurting children. And and yes, as you said, it's kind of thrust Malcolm into that role then of like, are you the new owner now? As well as like, scary shits in there. Uh, And otherwise, I also hope that the children's ghosts aren't stuck here. I, I don't think we really see much of that. In some of this series, I, I I could be wrong in terms of what happens in the Secret Commonwealth, but I feel like we, you know, um, I hope that the children's ghosts they made it to the underworld and that Lyra freed them. And
1: I mean, they got a decade to wait, don't they? Or so a decade and a little bit, some change. I mean,
0: it's better than like being trapped in the stones of this place forever. There's also yeah. like this creepy, weird reverence, right, in the f- way that. Bonneville like so fervorously, like, talks about the true owner of this place. He's like, I'm a big fan. Like, it comes across like that. Yeah,
1: it, it comes across like that. It also comes across fake, and like the fact that the guy's name was Murderford mm. and they called him Lord Murderer. Like, it's. Straight up That's it's like the best believe in ghost stories, Malcolm, cuz you're living in one. Ha ha ha. You know. You're right. It's it of, does it's sound like a little made up. In that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it feels like he's just trying to scare an 11-year-old and Malcolm does get pretty scared, right? Like at first he tries to exit the conversation and Bonvie is like, "No, Malcolm, the spirits are flocking to your fear and soon you'll hear them and then see them." Malcolm does fall for it, hook-line-sinker just for a hot second, but then he stares at his candle and suddenly his floating grain of light comes back, the seed of his aurora. Feeling more hopeful from this, he tells Bonvie that he's wrong, and he's wrong about Lyra, too. She's Azrael and Coulter's daughter, not his. Bonvie says, well, maybe you're wrong about my motivations. Maybe it's Alice I'm interested in. Asta whispers to Malcolm don't let him talk about what he wants and he nods. He suddenly remembers the wooden acorn right, way back when, feels like years ago, the wooden acorn and he asks, Mr. Bonneville what's the Russikov field?
0: Yeah, and Mr. Bonneville's quite taken aback by this because he's like, how do you know what that is? And Malcolm's like, I don't know that's why I'm asking you, which yes, and Bonneville's like, well, why don't you ask dr hannah ralph and now it's malcolm's (laughs) turn to be taken aback he retorts that he has and she doesn't know about it because she studies the history of ideas bonneville says well i thought it would be right up her street and then springs it on malcolm asking why are you so interested in this study and Malcolm's spangle is growing all the while and it's described as a small jeweled serpent twisting and twining for him alone
1: I love that imagery because it's going to connect in just a second to a couple of our other mentions of the Russikov field. First, Malcolm eggs him on and he says, the gravitational field deals with the force of gravity, right? And the magnetic deal, the magnetic field deals with that force. So what force is it the Russikov field deals with? Bonvy responds, no one knows, kid. Malcolm asks if it could have to do with the uncertainty principle. Ah, I love this. It's very clever. It reminds me of two big scenes from the original trilogy. The first scene it reminds me of that I won't go too deeply into is it does remind me a little bit of both Lyra meeting Mary Malone and kind of impressing her versus her meeting Boreal also in the museum and kind of uh, impressing him with some of her knowledge. And there's more than that, right? There's a few mentions of Rusikov in the first few books. The first mention we get of him is in Northern Lights. There's a man at Coulter's party who introduces the concept, right, while talking uh, to some of the other people at the party, and Lyra eavesdrops and talks with them. He says they don't interact with other particles, but they're attracted to adults or at the edge of adolescence, which is why the Oblation Board was formed. So, second, Lyra meets Lord Boreal at that party and tells him she knows about Rusikov particles. And it's a very similar manner to here with Malcolm, right? She blurts it out like, oh, well, it maybe it's something to do with Rusikov. Uh, I know about dust, you know, trying to, trying to show off a little bit and get information out of him as well and get a retort out of him. I thought that was pretty parallel to this. And yeah. lastly, we get a very very detailed explanation uh, with Lyra and Asriel at the end of Northern Lights about how that's when innocence changes to experience. Oh, and I'm sorry, the very last one, the fourth and final, this is the last time we hear of it in the main series, is Lyra and Mary Malone in The Subtle Knife.
0: Yeah, great, great point. And it's interesting that he's like, oh, I thought that Hannah Ralph would be interested in it. It sounds like Bonneville knew that dust was part of what makes the alethiometers work. Yes,
1: that's a good point, especially because of the rucksack that Malcolm's about to steal. It kind of Mm. becomes, uh, again, much like Lyra's rucksack in The Subtle Knife, right? When she loses her alethiometer from leaving it and she grabs it and it's gone. Uh, It's kind of a similar thing here. He doesn't know what he's got yet.
0: Yeah. I will say, it's interesting that they had hypothesized it has to do with the uncertainty principle, and I'm not a scientist, not a physicist, uh, but it seems like it actually has nothing to do with the uncertainty principle, and and that Bonneville doesn't really... I mean, I guess he doesn't ascertain that, he doesn't confirm that for Malcolm. Malcolm was just spitting shit, but, I mean, Bonneville doesn't know how air works, so... Is he that good of a scientist, who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, he gets Bonneville. taken
1: down by two kids, so.
0: Yeah, that's, well, I mean, any scientist can get taken down by two kids. But Yeah,
1: many fictional books have proven this.
0: Bonneville is silent for a few moments, and then finally retorts, saying that Malcolm is a persistent child, which is true. But <laughs> Bonneville says were he w- Malcolm, he would be asking different questions, and you're not Malcolm. That's the point. And Malcolm explains that he wanted to know about the field because it's connected to dust. And meanwhile, Alice is moving quietly through the archway and Malcolm mouths to her Bonneville and gestures for her to go while he has Bonneville occupied. He turns back to Bonneville who's giving a speech about how some things you can explain to an elementary school pupil but others move quickly out of range. Experimental theology, the Ruzikoff field is one of them. I do think Malcolm is... As before, doing a lot of really smart manipulating here, right? And keeping Bonneville talking. Even though, obviously, at the same time, Bonneville's trying to manipulate him. So, interesting battle of the wits here. Malcolm looks around silently to find that Alice was gone. But Bonneville hears the motion and is like, Is it that girl, Alice? Malcolm's like, No, it's just me. Which Bonneville reminds him again of the tortured souls. He begins to say, Those dead children, did I tell you what he did to their demons? It was the most ingenious, but then Malcolm just associates through it, mouthing, not true to himself, all throughout (laughs) it. Alice and Lyra have already gone, and he just has to study himself, keeping the candle lit, and carrying forward to climb silently and slowly.
1: This didn't really stick out as much on first read, but now on reread, this scene is actually so interesting because it seems like Bonvi might be breaking and peppering some truth in between some of these lies. Uh, I think he might be hyperbolizing about the child murder going on. But Bonvi is telling him the answer to maybe some of the things to deal with Russakov particles. And when they, you know, connect, right? Uh, as some research later in the original trilogy tells us, murdered children... The agony of their souls
0: hmm.
1: creating a spark, possibly?
0: Oh, <sighs> interesting, interesting. I have some thoughts. I don't know if this is like
1: tinfoil or theory crafting. truly. I guess anything's game, you know, nowadays. But if he's chasing after Lyra so much and he's so mad about something to deal with Marisa Coulter, who got him locked up for something, and later Marisa Coulter opens the ablation board to carry on research dealing with these exact particles and how to kind of recreate these particles and what they do, basically, their field. Did she enhance his research, bro?
0: I Yeah, I think so. I think she built on some of them. Yeah.
1: Did she steal his research, get him locked up through the courts and, like, as a witness on uh, at, at like when he was getting locked up get him nailed in jail uh and steal his research is this a thought is that why he's trying to kill lyra
0: i think it i mean i almost wonder like if it's a combination of things i believe that he could have assaulted mrs Coulter just based on all of the other character stuff we've seen on him but also i also believe that marisa could have stolen some of his research i think i i do believe What Lord Asriel said at the end of Northern Lights to Lyra is true, right? Because he was saying that Marisa was a very smart scientist, and she was the one who first discovered that there is a connection between the time that a demon settles and and when dust begins to settle. But the other stuff might have been something that she built on maybe some of the stuff that Bonneville Mm -hmm. was willing to do.
1: I don't know. He seems to know a lot about children's deaths and the agony it brings their souls
0: yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that he got it at the same... I, maybe Marisa, like, figured it out while they were yeah. researching together or something, but I, I think that she, right, she has to have made discoveries. She was also a brilliant mind
1: mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, it could be both. I mean, he might have had the research and not intended to do the thing with it, after all.
0: I don't yeah. know. Or, like, did he assault her and then she stole his research? or something like that.
1: Yeah, She's I like don't know. I I don't dude. uh I just don't know. Yeah. I don't think we will ever know actually. I'm going to be honest with you. Really? Hmm. We might have thought about this more than anyone
0: else. <laughs> that's a that's a way to put it, Chloe. <laughs> that's a diplomatic way to put it. I'll take uh me responding to that. What's what is kind of deep or not that deep anymore is uh where Malcolm is in this place, in this castle, because he gets to the trap door. He hears nothing but his heartbeat. So he pushes himself into the door, and up he goes. He's about to reach to the door, but remembers that there is a kitchen, and if the cooks were like Sister Fenella or his mother, they'd have knives. But unlike Malcolm's mother and Sister Fenella, I do not keep my knives in a drawer.
1: (laughs) I keep them in a block. I'm not an animal.
0: Yeah, right? Um, Jesus. It's also dangerous.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Just keep them in a drawer like that. Depending on how you're sashing them in the drawer. Depending.
1: Anyway. He picks the best choice, right? The concealable one that's uh, enough to do some damage. Puts it in his belt and he goes out to the boat where he sees Alice and Lyra stumbling forward as fast as they can. Bone V's boat is tied off, but the body of the man has floated away. He unhooks the dinghy's anchor and he pushes Bone V's boat away from land, hoping this will give them a better survival odds. He also had grabbed Bonvie's rucksack during this, and he runs toward Alice, who was tugging La Belle Sauvage out of a bush. Lyra is in the grass next to her, but within a moment, they hear the laughter of the hyena. The ha! 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 And Bonvie is sauntering down the grass, shotgun under his arm, and the hyena follows as if on an invisible leash. Ugh, poor demon. I know. They can't get the boat into the water in time, and Bonvie is only a few strides away, He moves the gun to his left hand and says they might as well hand over the child. They have no hope of getting away now. Malcolm holds Lyra closer, asking why he wants her, and Alice is like, cause he's a bloody pervert. (laughs) True. Go
0: Alice. Bonneville laughs, and Alice and Malcolm are on high alert, tense beside each other. Mal tries to keep his attention to keep him from discovering that the- his own boat is actually gone. and Malcolm then accuses Bonneville of lying. How can someone just go on the internet and tell lies about the house's dark history? Lyra is quiet against his chest, with Asta calming her and Pan, and Malcolm feels for the knife in his belt. His arms are trembling, and he fears he'll drop the knife. He wonders, did he- really even intend to stab him because Malcolm's never been the violent type even in the few fights that he's been in and Bonville asks how would he know what the truth is and Malcolm says that his voice changes when he says something untrue Malcolm continues to feel for the knife and Bonville is surprised that Malcolm believes that sort of thing and he then hysterically says I suppose you believe that the last thing someone sees is imprinted on their retina and Malcolm doesn't <laughs> believe that but, I don't know. Was this, this is not, like, the plot of some Jessica Alba horror movie that I didn't watch?
1: Oh, was it the one awake where, like, she, she like, I, I think so. I don't know. I, I'd have to look that, it up. That or, Actually, like, the one where
0: they get the eye transfer. Maybe that wasn't yeah,
1: Jessica Wasn't she awake the entire time during that surgery? Wasn't that the plot or something? And then, like, there's some, d- I don't know, my mom watched it and she, it fucked her up, man. She was like, that, that movie yeah. fucked me up. And I'm like, dude, same with Spider-Verse on acid anyways
0: okay. um, <laughs> i was like they're very different but okay
1: <laughs> i do love that malcolm is just like no literally i do not believe that because i just saw my spangle thing and it blows my eye up and then it goes away all the time so i know for a fact i don't believe the last thing someone sees is imprinted on their retina mr bone v and, like, I do love he did call him Mr. Bon v earlier, which is the Aww. cutest thing in the world, because it's yeah. like, you know, even though this murderer is here to fuck your world up, you're still respectful, Malcolm. <laughs> yeah. He asks Bonvi why he wants Lyra, and Bonvi lies. He's like, well, she's my daughter. I want to give her a decent education. And Malcolm's like, no, we'll need a better answer than that. Then Bonvie says, "I'm gonna roast her and eat her," and Alice spits at him. <laughs> this is honestly, this is about to get crazy. I just want to warn you guys. Like, this is a little bit of world star going on. Um, he speaks to Alice, and he's like, "Bonvie is like, we could have been such friends, Alice. Maybe even more than friends. We shouldn't let such a little thing spoil that." And Alice kind of sees out of the corner of her eye. Malcolm's pulling the knife out in the dark and she moves a little closer and he moves a little closer.
0: Yeah, I mean like, ugh just like him being like, Alice, you could have been like maybe more than friends and I'm like, oh my God, get a job, Gerard. Just like leave Alice alone. She's like, <sighs> a baby.
1: It's really hard when I mean you're she's she's offender baby. to get a job. <sighs> literally. Uh, Actually
0: though, no, literally.
1: Malcolm shifts Lyra's weight, and he acts as if he's going to give her to Bone V, right? Holds her out, but then he stabs the knife into Bone V's thigh, hard as fuck, and Bone V howls in agony with his demon, and he drops the gun, and he's grabbing his leg, and Malcolm turns to put Lyra down, and suddenly there's an explosion so loud it knocks him flat, and Alice is holding the gun, standing over Bone He's groaning, rocking in the grass, bleeding, his demons thrashing. Oh, her foreleg. Her last foreleg, the hyena's foreleg, is smashed beyond repair. That's sad. I feel bad for the demon. That is sad. It's sad. Uh, Actually, you know, now that I mention it, maybe Lyra thinks that Alice is her daddy. You know? Oh. Mm, Takes. Hot takes. Maybe. Malcolm shouts for Alice to take Lyra and drags out the canoe. Alice throws the gun into the trees. Snatches Lyra up, evades the crawling V, and gets to the boat. I would have taken the gun. Uh, Malcolm has to close his eyes. The sight is far too disgusting to look at. It's pitiful. It's awful. He pushes it off, and they escape out into the breast of the flood, letting the water carry them away.
0: And that brings us to chapter 19, The Poacher. A nearly full moon hides behind clouds, and Lyra is just, you know, as she is, happily gurgling away as they sway.
1: I was curious if the moon symbolized anything here, like any omens. I suppose uh, this is probably like a waxing gibbous moon, right? Right before the full moon. And I don't know. I I found uh, a few things online that people think it symbolizes refinement where people form a plan and take action. But Malcolm is about to have his plans interrupted in this chapter.
0: I mean, he's taking some action. I wonder if it's also meant to sort of be an indication of timing, because wasn't Mm. there a full moon when Lord Asriel visited?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been about a month then, huh?
0: Yeah, nearly.
1: The stress has alleviated for the moment. Malcolm is feeling a little looser. They move quickly. Alice continues to stare back as they vanish. She's sharp, anxious, and angry. She bends over to tend to Lyra, and she's like, do you want a biscuit? And Malcolm ignores it, you know, he's like, oh, she's talking to Lyra. But no, she's actually talking to him. Uh, And he's surprised, he jokes he'd love a steak and kidney pudding, me too, and lemonade. And she's like, shut up, all we have are biscuits. (laughs) It's notable these are figgy biscuits, uh, such as like a Fig Newton, for those of you in the U.S. who might not understand.
0: Yes, and uh, our friend Warren messaged us to tell us exactly what to expect in terms of these biscuits. And yes, we do have Fig Newtons in the U.S.
1: We're not animals, Warren, Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> I know we sound raunchy and don't know what things are all the time, but we're not animals. I mean, God.
0: yeah, just because I don't know what a milk float is doesn't mean I've never eaten a Fig Newton.
1: Now you're like, you guys can't have tea with the queen. Okay. Anyways.
0: I'm going to have tea with the queen of my heart, Chloe.
1: Aw, I would have tea oh. with you. Oh.
0: <laughs> well... They seem to have lost Gerard Bonneville for now, but Malcolm's worried. He's mad and he worried because Bonneville's mad and mad people don't know when to give up. And Alice said, well, Malcolm must be mad then, too. Damn, got him. Uh, got him. Alice thinks that Gerard's dead by now and Malcolm agrees because he was bleeding a lot and his demon can't live long either. The clouds part, letting moonlight through and they look around the quiet world of water. There are tiny insects buzzing. It's all they can hear. Bread from the waters. And he mentions to Alice that he should guard Lyra from them. And Alice says, well, this isn't like a mosquito. It's a boat. Turns out it was a searchlight on the bow.
1: Yeah, they worry it's Gerard, but they don't know how he would have gotten a boat. They do know that people are out looking for them. So... They work to paddle and hide, and Malcolm is so tired, he just wants to cry. He's like, I just want to cry. I feel that. Mood. He doesn't want to cry in front of Lyra, though, so he grits his teeth, presses on, and they push into hills and woodlands, but they don't lose the search boat, so Malcolm decides to pull in so they can hide or fight or something, whatever. He heads toward what looks like a stone embankment or maybe a roof, and they retreat up the slope, Alice holding Lyra, shivering. The searchlight comes back around, the moon shines down again and they just stay very still. The light points at them, but then the light and the launch move past them and they finally can breathe. The fear Malcolm's been repressing finally comes back up and he gets really upset, nauseated, feels sick. Alice comforts him, and again, very surprised by that, and she tells him, you'll feel better in a minute. Lyra starts to cry, he distracts her with the torch and the canoe. And he starts to chat with her, very casually, but then he realizes, I'm actually really scared right now, flipping a shit, getting real freaked out, can't figure out why I'm scared, because the danger's gone, Bone V's pretty much dead back there. He asks Alice, are you scared? She responds she is, but not that much. If it were just her, she would be, but with both of us, I feel better.
0: Aww. Aww friends they are friends as friends they walk toward the slope of wood gathering branches and twigs hoping to make a fire but when he comes back alice is desperate because the searchlight has returned the boat has the air of being official like the police or the ccd searching for someone and it would see them soon but suddenly the branches part and out comes (gasps) beyonce mr boatwright we haven't seen him in like
1: 200 pages. I thought it was
0: dead. I actually, honestly, the first time that I was reading this, I was so happy that he was alive. I, I was like, there's some glimmer of hope
1: yeah, in this uh, place
0: if Boatwright made it out.
1: Not much, right? It's pretty dark for a little bit more of this book, but that was a yeah. glimmer of hope. And Mr. Boatwright is like, hide the boat further in the trees and bring the baby out. He says the boat out there is a CCD boat and they better hurry. They empty their boat, turning it upside down in case it rains again, and begin to move, with the boat with the searchlight getting closer. Lyra's upset, and Boatwright gives a drop of wine to her to keep her quiet. They comment, they're like, man, we should have tried this earlier. How smart. (laughs) Mood, that's me. You just gotta give me a couple drops of wine, too, and I quiet right up.
0: Drops is a way to put it. Um... The boat stops, shining its light straight on Boatwright and Malcolm, but they stay very still, still concealed by the trees, and the CCD men move on from them. Mr. Boatwright asks the last time they ate her slut, which Malcolm can't remember, and brings him into a cave to have some stew.
1: I really love the way that Lyra's two cave plots are being brought back in, in this book. Malcolm is entering a cave that is full of knowledge, right? Not just Boatwright's knowledge. With some of his knowledge of the CCD vehicles and some of the stuff going on. But Mrs. Simkin ends up hashing out all of this different knowledge to them about the Priory later when they need to retrieve Lyra. And when they do save Lyra, Lyra's been drugged. Like that one time.
0: Yeah, and she's also stolen from this cave.
1: Yeah, kidnapped in caves. So there's some themes, some strong themes.
0: Yeah, parallels. Mr. Boatwright asks if Malcolm needs help with his rucksack, but Malcolm shakes his head, and I love that Mr. Boatwright just, like, accepts it and helps him put it over his shoulders. They come to a clearing where Alice had been feeding Lyra with a little bit of wine. Feeding's a way to put it, too. (laughs) <laughs> she hands Lyra to Malcolm so she can go use the bathroom and they plan to bring any other supplies in from the canoe for Lyra. Mr. Boatwright directs them to spread the blanket on the ground and bundle all the items and he wraps it up and swings the bundle over his shoulder. They begin their five minute trek and Alice takes Lyra from him after a bit to spread the weight then Alice notes that Nal is wearing Bonneville's rucksack and he confirms that he stole it from his boat. He has no clue why he took the bag, but thought, I don't know, maybe Dr. Ralph could find interest in it. And of course, thinking of Dr. Ralph and her warm house with all of the books in the history <sighs> sure does bring a pang to his heart because he's like, what if I'm forced to be a fugitive and outlaw like Mr. Boatwright for the rest of his life? He's like, what if I could never go back?
1: I mean, you're being a little dramatic, first of all. He is.
0: He's exhausted. That's what I like
1: about him, honestly. Uh, Yeah, he's a little melodramatic, but you know what? I was too with that. I I was too last year, and at that age too. (laughs) So, I'm still melodramatic, is what I'm trying to tell you.
0: It's Aries season.
1: It's Aries season. They finally come to a clearing with a large rock jutting out of the ground, and the moon shines down on a handful of people gathered round a fire. Men, women, two children, eating from tin plates. Mrs. Boatwright's there, and she says hello to Alice. She knows Alice's mom. She introduces herself to them as Audrey, asking who the baby is. Malcolm introduces Lyra, and Audrey shows them where they can change and take care of Lyra, offering them food before sleep. It turns out they're in the Chilterns. The other people in the cave are in similar positions, most of them on the run from the government, and she advises them, don't don't poke around too closely at them. You know, give them their privacy. After they take care of Lyra, a boy that's Malcolm's age at the campfire offers to show him where to throw their garbage. This boy's name is Andrew, and he's asking a lot of questions. Malcolm isn't really inclined to answer a lot of them. He decides he doesn't want to be that rude, and so he asks Andrew how he came to the cave. Andrew and his aunt have been flooded out, and he mentions, there hasn't been a flood like this since Noah's time. Andrew then follows up and says, this will last for 40 days and 40 nights. Wink, wink, I get it, Pullman, it's a reference. Uh, Big red flag, though, right? Like, this this 10, 11-year-old is, like, creepily into this flood and religious lore, and he's like, 40 days, Noah, his ark okay. Yeah. New person, you know, like, pull it back.
0: Absolutely. He's all like, the evil's gonna be washed from the world. I mean, he doesn't say it, but he's thinking it. And it's like, yeah, it's you, Andrew. Um, sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I get why he thinks that, right? Because it, I mean, even the readers, right, are, are thinking of it a little because Pullman is referencing it in some ways, along with other yeah. stories. Like, I mean, Lyra as baby Moses. a lot of A lot of things going on. But Andrew asks about Alice and Lyra, and Malcolm tells them their names, because it's kind of hard to lie about it when everyone else kind of knows his name. He (laughs) thanks him for showing them the pit, though Andrew seems a bit put out. When Malcolm returns, Alice is feeding Lyra, and Audrey brings them some stew, taking Lyra so that they can eat. After eating, Malcolm feels his eyes begin to close, so he pushes himself to take Lyra and stay awake, and Mr. Boatwright brings a bundle of blankets and canvas bags stuffed with hay. Malcolm puts Lyra in between him and Alice and they all fall asleep together. Lyra Aww. wakes him crying in the morning, full of poop, and Malcolm makes moves to go change her. <laughs> but then, you know, Alice wakes up and he's just like, thank God. And because Al- Alice is all like, you're going to do it wrong, so maybe I should just do it. And Malcolm's like, amazing. Yes, this is what I hoped for. Um, at dawn, they wake and whisper, to keep from waking everyone else, and Alice puts another log on the fire, heating Lyra's saucepan and fills up the cask of fresh water outside while she waits for the pan to heat. Malcolm walks up and down with Lyra in the meantime, watching the sleepers in the cave. It seems like they multiplied in the night, or maybe they just, like, packed in and he hadn't seen them, or maybe they had just been poaching for the group.
1: Asta whispers to Malcolm to, "'Look at Pan!' Pan is in kitten form, and unwittingly, Pan is kneading the flesh of Malcolm's hand with his claws. Malcolm is kind of shocked. He feels astonished, shy, privileged. The passage is great. The great taboo against touching another's demon was not instinctual, but learned then. He felt a wave of love for the child and her demon, but that made no difference to them, because Lyra was still grizzling, and Pana Layman soon let go of Malcolm's hand and became a toad. <laughs> a toad? Ooh, maybe that's foreshadowing. <gasps> <clears throat> this feels bigger than it looks. Uh, the taboo is learned, not instinct. This speaks to a lot of prejudices right? that we as humans have learned, uh, like segregating ourselves by skin color and class and committing violence and taking power against others, for example, and, you know, losing our human connection or our connection to humanity. We won't know, for example, if Asriel would have sacrificed Lyra in the Northern Lights had Roger not been there, right? We don't know if, but we do know he had a pretty crazed look in his eye when she showed up on the doorstep. You know, he was hungry, okay, and he was willing to eat child flesh for it. Uh, but like, what if he had spent time in Lyra's childhood and knew Roger and had cared for him or had seen them grow up together? Like my mom would never have been able to murder my best friend for science because she would have been watching us and making sure we weren't off being assholes and would have been like, wow, these kids are beautiful with great souls. You know what I mean? Like, interesting that Asriel was so disconnected from his humanity that he was able just to do a child murderer thing real easy you know just bloop. Mm-hmm. Malcolm's been told his whole life stuff like not not wholly dissimilar to stuff like the church telling us things all the time that might not always be true sometimes they say some highly heinous false shit like ah no that's taboo boys can't like boys you know shit like that and I don't know. I think there's something interesting in respect and consent of, like, touching someone's demon and, like, intimacy as you get older, right? Like, you wouldn't touch someone's demon unless you were very intimately vulnerable with the other person and, like, you trusted the other person complicitly. But Malcolm realizing this at such a young age is pretty big. Kids understand the world a lot better than us in many ways, I think. And uh, I think this will probably come back in the future in a bigger way in the plot, right? It becomes normalized for Asta and Malcolm to kind of handle Pan and Lyra throughout the rest of the book. That also, I mean, they get put in situations where that has to happen. They have to be very close together. They have to go through drains and stuff soon. But it's interesting. I don't know. And it also reminds me a lot of the only other time we see someone okay with the demon touching in the story so close, which is Will and Lyra. Right? With Pan.
0: Yeah. It's a, that's an interesting... It's an interesting, uh... Interesting. I guess, parallel. Um, I can directly stare into the camera now. <laughs> um, Did you guys hear that silence? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, though, like, as you're saying, right, about it being a learned and not necessarily a tab like it's a learned taboo, right? If I wonder if many parents or caretakers end up accidentally like touching their children's demons, right? And their demons don't know. And the parents are the ones who condition it out of them or teach them not to or something. Um, I mean, uh,
1: it seems not though. Cause like it's the taboo is taught, you know, like literally it seems that these people are taught that through everyday life, not to do that. Like Lyra thinks it's taboo as well.
0: No, I mean, like, the babies. Like, the babies don't know, mm. and the baby demons, like, end up doing something like what Pan's doing, right? And then they
1: mm-hmm.
0: are just like, whatever, gonna touch mom and dad's but arm. But I-, I
1: think uh, family, too, you might know? be different, right? Like, I guess they just appear, obviously, when the, the kid appears, the demon appears, it just poof, there it is. But, like, I can imagine, like, Maria and... Pan, for example, could have shared a moment before, like where they were snuggled up. I can imagine it's and like Asriel picking up Pan for something, or you know, I don't think, I don't know if that necessarily is taboo. But again, it seems like one of those things the church is probably teaching that it's taboo, like you know, like don't have sex before yeah. marriage because you'll die.
0: Mm, you know a, what I that's mean? A, like that's a good point. Yeah,
1: uh, it seems maybe it's like magisterium taught that it's like it's wrong to connect with another person in this level. It's wrong to be vulnerable to anyone but the Magisterium, which is where you should be vulnerable, and give us your body and your life and your money.
0: Especially because we see that the Magisterium themselves, right, uh, they do break that taboo in Bolvanger. Mm -hmm. And they they feel entitled to do so. Yeah. To control the children. And and that's part of the taboo, right? Uh, Because when you aren't careful with it, when you aren't doing it consensually, it gives you such power over someone else. Mm-hmm. As we saw uh, with the way it affects Lyra when Pan is touched.
1: I mean, we see exercise throughout the the series, even right, like even with uh, like Lyra and Coulter in the fight.
0: Yeah, but like Coulter doesn't touch Pan directly, but but the scientist does. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yes, true. That's true.
0: Malcolm remembers, though, what they did to Bonneville the night before and wonders if the CCD came along the man with the hyena demon with a knife in his thigh. They're like, So are they gonna hunt down Malcolm and Alice now? Is Bonneville dead? And then Alice moves quietly with Malcolm, and before heading back into the cave, they exchange a look. Malcolm would never forget this look. There's a line. It was deep and complex and close, and it touched every part of him body and demon and ghost. I love that, that holy trinity, body and demon and ghost.
1: Uh, it, It reminds me a bit of the father, the son, the Holy Spirit, right? In talking about that bond again with soul and mate, demon and human, I really like this platonic friendship that's bloomed with Alice and Malcolm in the last two chapters. It's really caught my eye, this read. It's interesting because there's just so much thought of souls. I know we've discussed a few different kind of angles before, like Plato and Socrates in the podcast. And different just ideas on souls. And I do want to bring up this concept that I really love that shows up in Judaism in a few ways. And also exists in Christianity in a bit. And it's the treasury of souls or the chamber of creation. Goof. God has basically a tree of souls and all souls are blossomed from the tree. It has produced all souls that have ever existed. Originally it was thought there were only 600,000 souls. And boy, did they have to do some mental gymnastics when over 600,000 people were alive. Let me tell you, they were like, shit.
0: (laughs) There are more than this many people living in the city of the District of Columbia. (laughs) And they're not a state. That's not a real place, Eliana.
1: (laughs) Well, the solution that they had come up with to explain these over 600,000 people that were alive is the sparks of souls. Basically, Jewish souls did not receive a soul upon birth, after all. Originally, they thought that basically, you know, the souls grew on the tree, your body was born, a soul floated down and joined your body, which kind of reminds me a bit of the series, right, where you are born and your demon appears. Uh, But then they decided that Jewish souls did not receive souls, but sparks of souls, so parts of their souls, which is kind of not dissimilar to the idea of shattering of the vessel, Uh, And they received basically the offspring of the original 600,000 souls, which led to this concept of Beshert, or seeking your destined one to complete your soul. So it's a really interesting concept. It's kind of heavily related with Tikkun Ulam and the shattering of the vessels of humans basically being put on Earth to seek sparks of good find them and then to do good and help others to complete their souls like a big jigsaw puzzle of life and of repairing the world right and all of this like misfortune that's befallen the world and people and like finding what completes your soul and help repairing the world and i don't know maybe we're just all searching for the rest of our souls for our whole physical time on earth and maybe it's not just one soulmate, right? Like, maybe everyone you meet has a little bit of a spark that is part of completing your soul and keeping your soul thriving. And maybe that's what friendship is, the souls you find along well, the way, you know?
0: Like the real A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I like that. It's different from, I think, the platonic idea of love. Not, not platonic friendship, but... Um, yeah platonic romance in which they're like there were soulmates and shit mm-hmm. so yeah and if you're interested in in a different interpretation on the chamber of guff please go check out evangelion another uh <sighs> another series chloe and i also really like yes absolutely aston and malcolm head toward the rubbish pit to ditch lyra's diaper and they both keep an eye out for the boy, Andrew, from the night before. They hadn't seen him. And something is fishy about the kid. And it is because he's a fucking narc. <laughs> and when they return, Audrey's holding Lyra while Alice prepares milk. And Audrey asks who Lyra's mother was and what happened to bring them here. And Malcolm explains, well, the Priory collapsed. And Sister Manala had watched over Lyra, glossing over, like, oh, they're probably dead now. Um, They got out just in time. But then... They were swept away. Audrey keeps asking if uh, he knows who Lyra's family is, but he keeps lying and saying, oh, no, he doesn't. Some of the cave residents have begun to stir. And Malcolm asks Audrey who the rest of the families are that are staying here. And she mentions her own son, Simon, and his kids. And Malcolm asks about the boy, Andrew, from the night before. And she says, oh, he's Doris, witcher's nephew. Points her out, still asleep. They came from Wallingford Way. And Audrey admires how hungry Lyra is, and Malcolm notes that there's no sign of Andrew. And I just want to say, you know, bless the boatwrights. You know, I'm glad that they're alive and well, and they're just lovely throughout all of this.
1: Yeah, and it's really sad, because in a bit we're about to be scared for them.
0: Yeah! They don't deserve this. They've been through enough. Yeah, but it is
1: interesting how they're framed here, because, like, they're framed as the dumb adults. Like, uh, Did you read the series of Unfortunate Events series?
0: I read, like, a book in it, a a random one in the middle.
1: (laughs) Well, basically, each of their caretakers is, like, worse than the last until they just get handed over straight to the villain. And, like, each of their caretakers, they get put with one, and, like, they find the good in them, and they're like, Wow, what sweet person, too bad about this fatal flaw that becomes a literal fatal flaw, and each one of them dies because they're an idiot. Mm -hmm. And, like, they don't listen to the kids. The kids are always like, wait, that's Count Olaf, the villain. And the caretakers are like, (laughs) now, dear, I think I'd know. And then they get murdered, you know? And that's kind of what this feels like in a way that, like, the boatwright's like, now, listen, you're safe here. You don't have to worry. Everything's fine. No one's going to turn you into the CCD here. Like, we know. We've vetted everyone. You're safe here. Uh, And you just know something's going to go wrong.
0: Yeah. It can't last. But but it would be nice had they found...
1: Yeah, it, I wish it could last. I really do wish it could yeah. last for them. But Malcolm announces, we won't be staying long. We'll leave when the rain stops and the boatwright's like, no, no, stay as long as you want. You're safe. Everyone here has to be careful of their identity. Mr. Boatwright motions for Malcolm to come with him and he's like, ah, ever defeathered a chicken kid? And he's like, oh, yeah, all the time at the inn. And they start discussing what happened after he vanished at the inn that day. Malcolm tells him the officers had come back asking a lot of questions. No one said anything. Uh, a couple guys were like, Oh, yeah, that boatwright has evil dark powers. He could have become invisible, Mr. CCD man. <laughs> Mr. Boatwright's kind of amused at that one. His wife isn't. She's in the background like, Yeah, I think, I'm sure that's so funny, George. He tells Malcolm that you always have to have an escape route when the time comes and to never hesitate a single second, which I think is some pretty good foreshadowing for what comes at the end of the book, right? When Malcolm has to kill, uh, Gerard. That's, that, that mm-hmm. feels pretty, pretty significant. They had come here after the trout, taking hidden pathways across the woods, and he explains to Malcolm, you could take hidden pathways to London and no one would know where you went.
0: The resourcefulness of the boatwrights also kind of reminds me a little bit of the spirit of the Egyptians, right? How they know all the different routes and pathways, and the way that they've been very open and caring for all these different people, and just took in Malcolm, Alice, and Lyra. Mm-hmm. So...
1: Yeah, there's a lot of it in the Secret Commonwealth that we won't spoil, but there there's that feeling you get to see that of some Egyptians there and he has that same feeling of just like generosity.
0: Yeah, and their names are boat right, and the Egyptians yeah. live on boats.
1: Hell, you know who uh reminds me a bit of him, not quite as much in this book, and again, no spoilers, but Bunch Lessinger.
0: Huh. Okay, okay. Yeah, that sort of happy go lucky kind of vibe. Yep. Even though you're like, was this that lucky? are no. like, yeah, for sure. I'm like, I don't know, but good for you. When the flood came, uh, everyone moved higher up from the spot in which they were hiding, which is now the highest land in Berkshire. And Mr. Boatwright says that the water's on their side, which Malcolm doesn't really understand, and he explains it to him. The creature's in the water, Malcolm. I don't mean fish neither nor water voles, I mean the old gods. Old Father Thames. I seen him a few times with his crown and his weeds and his trident. He's on our side. The bloody CCD, they won't never win against Old Father Thames And other beings as well. There was a man with us. He saw a mermaid near Henley. The sea was so full, she cut right up the river, even that far from the coast. And this chap, he swore to me that if he saw that mermaid again, he'd go off with her. Well, two days later, he disappeared, and chances are he did just that. I believe it anyway.
1: I love that this is kind of like that birth of magic in this story, the bigger birth. We've seen a little bit Mm -hmm. of magic, a few magical things. You've got the the oscillating light around Malcolm's eyeball coming out that he can see and no one can. I mean, demons, come on. That's ridiculous, too. But (laughs) talking souls. Uh, But... The next book, and we don't even have to talk about the plot, but the next book is called The Secret Commonwealth. It's influenced by Mm -hmm. The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies by Robert Kirk. And I do feel like La Belle Sauvage has a lot more of to-the-eye magic, right? Like, there's a lot of magic that surfaces. The next couple chapters get a little trippy. Uh, There's a lot ahead for Malcolm, Alice, and Lyra, and not just here with Father Tem and the mermaids. Mermaids aren't in the first book, and Father Tem isn't actually spoken about as a figure like this either before La Belle Sauvage, so Pullman obviously got really inspired with the idea of the secret commonwealth of these creatures and of magic, and I think it's really good framework in a storytelling way when you want to continue this magical, youthful series and you've already kind of given a lot of the big answers. There's definitely a lot that we don't know about the series as far as like dust and the way we things work. Some things are kind of mysterious and more divine than anything that we just might not ever know in some manners. But I I, I think him adding these new elements is great. It allows him to continue on the story without letting it get old or letting it get kind of like, we already know that, dude. And I'm interested to see how he ties all of it together with a lot of the politics from the next book into that last book. It works really well as we get prepared with the fairy that we're going to meet and her seduction, right, of Lyra, Alice, and Malcolm and that bubble of innocence and experience that gets projected over the children as well as the great gate within the waters.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And and so I like that this is, you know, priming us for shit's about to get weird. And even Bonneville was doing that a little, (laughs) right? I mean, he was wrong, but... He was doing that a little.
1: Yeah, he was opening it up, like, this shit's gonna get weirder, and there's gonna be some ghouls and some ghasts.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting who's who, who's a trustworthy source for that and who isn't. And that's another thing, right, that makes him feel a little bit like the Egyptians, right? That, that he knows about this sort of secret commonwealth that exists. Mm-hmm. Audrey jokes, though, that if... Uh, That man who followed a mermaid went in after her. Well, he's probably bloody cold. Then Audrey takes the chicken from Mal, motioning to warm up, and gets some cheese and bread from the bin. Malcolm cuts some thick slices for him and Alice, and Doris Witcher then wakes up. She smells thick of alcohol, and she asks if anyone's seen Andrew, her nephew. And Malcolm actually hasn't seen him, he offers, and she asks, well, wait, who the fuck are you? And he figures there's just no <laughs> use in lying and says that he's Malcolm because everyone else here knows that he's Malcolm Polstead. Doris groans in her hangover, lying back down, and Malcolm brings a snack to Alice. Someone bring Doris a snack, holy shit. She needs to eat <laughs> if she's hungover. Some protein. Um, I know. Bring her some cheese. And Soak that as up. Malcolm sits down. Yeah, the bread, too. He remembers, fuck, we're murderers, we killed Bonneville. Asta flies over to Ben, whispering to him, and Malcolm watches Mrs. Boatwright show Lyra off to everyone. He watches someone tend to the chicken, gutting it, and thinks, well, that's not gonna feed everyone. I'm like, well, good thing you're about to leave, Malcolm. (laughs) uh, It is sad, though, actually. Uh, they finally feel safe again for the first time in a while around adults that they can trust after finding so many other suspicious adults who have been terrible, and then Andrew goes and fucks it all up.
1: <laughs> you know, Doris is a total mood, too. She's, like, hungover as shit. Girl, I'd be that drunk, too, if I had a shitty, like, alt-right Nazi child, you know, <laughs> that I had to look after. You saw oh Knives God, Out, right? Yes?
0: No, I actually haven't. You I haven't? actually haven't yet.
1: Uh, this me. isn't like a Don't spoiler, it's just a character that's in it, but there is a character that uh, is a, a young teen boy that's a total outright Nazi troll, and he just like, oh, the family busts out about it at one point, point. they're like, your Nazi son sat in the bathroom trolling on fucking Twitter <laughs> for whatever hours, jacking off, it's very funny, and that's how I feel about this Andrew kid, it's like, uh, you know, very presentable and smiles at face, and then it's like, oh no, he turns out he's a fash. He's a mini fascist Oh, shit. Oh,
0: he is. He is. <sighs> no one defends Ale- him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not me. I won't. You
1: know that <gasps> motherfucker is like a Ben Shapiro <gasps> stan.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: <sighs> oh, he's a Tory. Sorry. I forgot. Wrong hmm. wrong place. He's a total Tory. Sorry. Take back the Nazi comments, everyone. I'll put it into words, you understand. What a fucking Tory. Little fucking mini-fascist. <laughs> Alice moves closer and asks if Malcolm trusts Boatwright because things are kind of getting weird here and they need to move soon. He comes clean and he's like, let me tell you about this kid, Andrew, and my suspicions. And at that moment, Doris ends up stumbling to the fireplace and sitting down very heavily. Alice glares at her. She doesn't really notice for a minute, but then she takes notice of them and is like, why you want to know where Andrew is? And Malcolm explains, Andrew brought something up that really interested me, Miss Wincher. And Doris is like, is it that bloody league? And Malcolm's like, oh, my God, the League of St. Alexandria? Is he a member? And she's like, yes, yes, he is. And everything happens very quickly. Alice runs to Mrs. Boatwright, who's speaking to a woman. Lyra's on her hip, and Malcolm goes immediately to George, asking him which path to take to get to the boat. George and Audrey at first are nonchalant. They're like, no, no, stay here, don't worry. But then everything changes. A man in a dark uniform shows up and is trying to get Lyra from Mrs. Boatwright. Three more spread out to guard the cave beyond him and lurking, half ashamed, half proud, is Andrew. You little shit. (laughs) You little fucker. It all blurs. Malcolm and Alice get close to getting Lyra, but the next moment, Malcolm's hit in the head, sprawled cussed on the ground, and Alice is biting someone. He calls out, very dizzy, Lyra, I'm coming! But one of the men knocks Audrey Boatwright over on top of him, and he tries to get up again.
0: Yes, and so the chapter ends with someone was wailing and crying, but it wasn't Lyra. Someone else a long way off was shouting, a woman's voice incoherent with rage and helplessness. Audrey Boatwright began to sob as she found her husband unconscious beside her. But the dark-uniformed men were gone, and Lyra was gone with them.
1: Fuck. It's real hard to keep track of this girl. I'm really worried about that girl, Lyra. And that puts us into Chapter 20, The Sisters of the Holy Obedience. Malcolm is finally able to move. The cave is revolving around him. As he gets up, he falls over immediately and almost vomits and asked is like, you cannot stand up yet. You have to lie down. But of course he works through the concussion like any normal 11 year old chubby nerd would do and gets up in a frenzy of rage because he has to go deal with the smug, obnoxious, fake, pious Andrew. Look, I know this is fantasy, but like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you could just get up through your concussion, Malcolm, as a kid.
0: People do it. know
1: it's not realistic i'm sorry it's not realistic as somebody who's been concussed before it's not realistic
0: yeah maybe maybe it was mild, or maybe he's not concussed
1: i mean the room sure ain't not spinning right now uh Mm -hmm. he puts his hands up in defense but malcolm knocks them aside hitting him in the face and he falls over crying He calls for his aunt, who comes along to ask what he's done, and Malcolm kicks the boys, curled up in the ground, asking who those men were.
0: Yeah, so something's interesting here, right? Between what we're seeing in the changes of Malcolm, these chapters, between Malcolm learning to square up to stab Bonneville and how he beats Andrew up. I think, first of all, we're seeing that Malcolm's picking up some uh, interesting interrogation skills to go along with his whole child spy shtick. But also, uh, another thing, right? Between you know the sudden bravery he finds and and now the this violence that he's showing towards Andrew is this supposed to sort of be like a sort of um, parallel to Will Will Perry?
1: There is a lot of Will parallels going on here, and the violence does feel similar. Parallels. Like the uh, oh my god, fired the <laughs> uh, the witch and everything obviously <sighs> later, and how he will kind mm. of attacks the witch. That feels very similar. I don't know. It, it's weird because some chapters he feels like he's 11, 12 years old, and then other chapters he's 18. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, some chapters he has physical prowess and. It's
0: I mean, odd. at 10 or 11, I had a lot of physical prowess, so maybe I that's didn't. it.
1: Maybe that's my problem, but I don't know.
0: I was, pr- I was probably in the best shape of my life <laughs> at 11 years old, and it's all just been downhill from there. <sighs>
1: Man, maybe you should stock back up on the vitamin C, you know? Doris begins to try to pull Malcolm off of Andrew, and Malcolm continues to pummel the boy, stomping on Doris's fingers. Again, things are getting a little world star.
0: <laughs> He's just wheeling out on everyone. <sighs>
1: And then Alice gets in on it, right? Andrew's like, You broke my jaw. And Alice shows up and she starts slapping and scratching at Andrew. No. <laughs> she pulls Doris off Malcolm. This is a mess. This is all messy. Y'all are trending on World Star right now. And. The boy's mouse demon is squealing and screaming and cowering behind them, and finally he confesses that the men were probably CCD, and Malcolm's like, that's the wrong uniform, liar, and Andrew's like, that's all I know, and the cave behind them is in total disarray during this. Audrey is trying to wake unconscious George Boatwright. Alice is tugging at Malcolm's sleeve. She's like, hey, there's this rando, small, wiry man with a vixen demon who's here, and he says that they aren't CCD, they're security of the Holy Spirit. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the first real time we hear of this. Uh, on comparison from real life, there are many like historical militias, but the Sovereign Military Order of Malta comes to mind most here. They were a Catholic militia that dates back to like 1048. They rose especially during the Crusades, as you can imagine, many catholic militias probably did Uh, they took on the military defense of the sick the pilgrims and the captured territories the order had a large number of local priories and associations around the world but they also still exist a number of organizations with similar sounding names that are unrelated and i thought this was so interesting that they have like a bunch of organizations that are seeking to capitalize on the name that have similar names Just kinda reminds me of the Magisterium with their eight hundred different boards, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what's real and who what's not. This order also guards religious places like seminaries, nunneries, schools, and had probably come from Wallingford at their priory with the nuns. A woman that Mal can't see says that they're the sisters of the holy obedience, and that she used to work for them. They pray, they teach, they look after kids, but they're fierce, stern and cruel, and they were just so stern and cruel that this woman couldn't bear it, so she left.
1: Yeah, a little plot convenient, but I'll take it. And something interesting is that this story in the Northern Lights, Ma Costa actually tells Lyra that the sisters of the Holy Obedience were in Watlingford, not Wallingford. So, interesting, I'm wondering if he changed it or if Ma Costa just got the city wrong, but uh, that doesn't seem likely. I think he just changed it to be Wallingford, and we do learn that Lyra was originally intended to go there, and Asriel fought back about it, so it, it seems common knowledge this is a strict and cruel place. I imagine the area is probably not quite so tolerant, but it's interesting that that's actually where Lyra was supposed to go instead of the Priory at Godstow.
0: It kind of explains why they uh, seem so intent on keeping her. I guess.
1: Yeah, because she got away once.
0: Yeah, they're like not again. <laughs> Andrew continues to snivel as he fucking should, and his aunt tells him, "I probably shouldn't like be condoning children getting like beat up, but
1: no, but he's a shit ass.
0: He is a shit ass. Uh, and Eliana when she was Lyra. eleven
1: could take him.
0: Eleven year old Eliana just <sighs> I I probably could." I went to some scuffles as an 11 year old. Oh my God. um, In elementary school. Um, Andrew's aunt tells him to tell the truth, and he says, well he's in the League, and that he was just doing what was right, and he could tell that Lyra wasn't there, so he called the Office of Child Protection, he didn't talk to this other security of the Holy Spirit, and he tells them that the Mother Superior is in charge at the Priory, and that the protection people took him to see her and told him that it was the right thing to do. He told her everything he had to, and then they prayed together, and she let him sleep in a bed for a bit before guiding them here. It's interesting that part of their indoctrination in the League is like any children you know that don't belong to any people go tell the Office of Child Protection. That's like a way of them covering their bases to be like, we're going to get Lyra. Andrew falls to the ground, curling up, sobbing, and everyone's pretty pissed at him and he can feel it. So like no one helps him.
1: (laughs) Darn. (laughs) Almost everyone that is because George Boatwright doesn't really have an opinion. He's still unconscious. And Audrey is getting more and more scared. Alice goes to help them while Malcolm continues to question Andrew about the Priory's location. It's not far, it's up on a hill with all ages of children. The woman who worked there mentions they prepare the children for lives as servants, both boys and girls kept apart after age 10. And the young babies are kept in a special nursery, at least 15 or 16 of them. Sometimes not just orphans, but also badly behaved children. Interesting, so you're stealing children and then basically turning them into sl- Anyways, Overall, about one hundred kids, and no one tries to escape because they always get caught and punished so badly they'll never try again. She reiterates, "You won't believe how cruel they can be." Malcolm asks Andrew if he's tattled on any other children to get them put there, and he won't say his aunt then slaps him, making him tell the truth and he wheels out that he might have
0: your shit bag um A shit ass, so we're gonna see this priory in a bit but it's in some ways less cruel in that you know the children aren't like literally dying but still as other moments within these chapters are it's reminiscent of bulvanger in the idea that they are just taking children right kind of stealing them and they are trying to remove their souls by making them more pliable right like it there's more to taking someone's soul than just literally severing them with a fancy knife right they're doing it mm-hmm. by crushing their spirits instead of conducting weird science experiments on them
1: yeah it's definitely just another way to kill your soul for sure and we yeah. see that when malcolm gets in soon how he's treated
0: Mm-hmm. just like immediately yeah
1: he asks who he reports to and Andrew answers he reports to Brother Peter, but he's not supposed to be telling him any of this. Brother Peter is the director of the Office of Child Protection in Wallingford, and they have an office in the Priory. No separation of church and state here, folks. Nope. Malcolm loses his focus, head throbbing, nauseated, and Alice comes to let him lean on her. She tells him there's nothing they can do, and that they know where she is for now. She speaks gently to him, which, again, surprises him, very comforting, and they're bonding. Mr. Boatwright then wakes up. He had a much worse concussion than Malcolm, but he made it. He lived. Like that meme, I lived, bitch. Alice gives Malcolm something hot to sip and calls him Mal, which she never does, and I do, and you might, Eliana, but Alice doesn't.
0: Yeah, actually, no one does except for Alice. And so I kind of love this moment, right? Because Malcolm's so touched by He's like, no one's ever called me Mal before. Yeah. and it's, It feels almost like, in some way, he's like, Alice is my sister now, and only she will ever call me Mal from now on forever. Only she's allowed. <laughs> um, it is it's, it's really touching. Yeah. The liquid that Alice brings Malcolm has a gingery lemony taste. The woman who handed it to Alice said it was a painkiller and it would help keep him from feeling sick, that it would address the nausea. Malcolm sleeps and wakes up when it's dark. Alice goes to get him some cheese and bread and offers to fry him an egg. Malcolm is groggy and gross smelling. It's a mood. Uh, But suddenly remembers (laughs) what happened in the previous day and asks Alice if they really... He trails off talking about Bonville. He's like, it's
1: really interesting because like he says did we really bon vie like he doesn't say it he refuses to say it mm-hmm. the k-word
0: yeah well probably too for bad. the best because it is yeah um
1: Alice <laughs> says it was real she's like but hush now it's over here's a mug of stock Here you go, just sip the mug, forget your problems, stuff it down, repress all of it. And he's like, has it been night for long? But it hasn't. People are out there poaching. It hasn't been dark for long. And she tells him Andrew's aunt is guarding him. He won't be getting out anytime soon. He doesn't beat around the bush, though. He says they have to go get Lyra. And truly, again, this is fantasy. You know, you're you're six hours into your concussion recovery, but that's fine. There's something special going on maybe in a way too, right? Like almost like a, a religious protection or like, you know, Harry Potter had the Harry's love from Lily dying for him. Malcolm is being a good person here by saving Lyra from the the church, question mark, who are supposed to be good people. Uh maybe he just has that magical savior protection going on, right?
0: Yeah, I mean he has like destiny on his side, right? Cuz Lyra's the destined one. So Better someone's so. got to be there to usher it. Usher her in.
1: Well, Malcolm's got it bad.
0: Yep. Yeah. Get it? Because usher? Yeah. You got it, yeah. you got it oh, bad. Oh, yeah. I was also thinking the same song, but I didn't connect it. Alice has been thinking the same thing as Malcolm, and Malcolm steps further to say they need to know what the Priory knows about them. So we asked the lady that worked there who was talking to them earlier and for some details about the place. Alice goes to get her and introduces her now with a name. It's Mrs. Simpkin with a ferret demon. Malcolm all this time is trying not to focus on his headache and Mrs. Simpkin's demon is nervous when they declare that they want to break Lyra out and she tells them, well, it's like a fortress. You're like never going to get in. She gives them the floor plan though as best that she can, including the nursery and the nun cells, but she's uneasy, especially as Malcolm realizes that, oh, she can't read or write. And so he feels bad when he was like, can you help us draw a plan or a map? He does get the location of the stairs and the guest rooms, and her demon fills in some of the blanks as well. Only two nuns will be on duty, allegedly with one sleeping in the nursery herself, and they all get up early for services. They're definitely going to be pressed for time, Malcolm remembers a lot of these rituals from the Godstow Priory, and the more detailed that Mrs. Simkin gives them, the less hopeful that they are. They release her, though, <laughs> and he and Alice discuss their plan. Malcolm suddenly thinks of a fatal flaw in their plan, but how are they going to tell which baby is Lyra with 20 babies who all have random demons that could be anything in this room because they're all changing, Alice is like, Malcolm, I will know Lyra will know Lyra. And when you get the scene later on, and, and we find out that they do know Lyra, I'm like, I like to imagine that Pullman like, did like <laughs> some research in, in an experiment. It was like, everyone, bring me your babies. I'm going to see if I can tell them all apart.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, to go back to earlier what you said, like Lyra is getting bigger and older, right? So like she will look distinct. But it is pretty funny. It's like the most Malcolm shit in the world that he's like, oh, we aren't going to be able to do it, Alice. Oh my god, we're not going to be able to do it, Alice.
0: (sighs) I get it, a lot of babies look the same. Yeah, they do. So, I like the idea that Pullman was like, but do they really?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm says he's feeling much better, though he's still pretty dizzy, still pretty sore. He can't imagine leaving Lyra another moment, though, so he forces himself up, careful not to make a fuss. Alice gathers their belongings. She actually wraps them up like George Boatwright had earlier, by throwing them in the middle and making kind of a knapsack out of them. They don't tell anyone their plans. They head down the path, wondering if the biscuits are still in the canoe, for Lyra purposes. Malcolm thinks of his parents, which he's been doing from time to time, though he's been just pushing it back in a way, but now he wonders if they're suffering, if they're wondering if he's alive. He makes a face of anguish, but it's dark so no one can see it anyway, and he snaps out of it quickly.
0: I do love that Malcolm is thinking about, around this time, that we started learning about how to put other thoughts out of his head, like this, right? His worry for his parents to just focus on what needs to get done now. And he also does it when he's climbing into the Priory later on, but I'm just like, you know, welcome to compartmentalization, Malcolm.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's... It's hurtful. It's definitely hurtful. It's uh it's sad because I keep saying he's so young and it's like he shouldn't have to be yeah. dealing with these feelings, these complex emotions of murder and shit and his parents. Yeah. They should be taking care of him. Not him taking care they of Lyra. Should.
0: Yeah. Both he and Alice. Alice and
1: Malcolm are very wary about the possibility of enemies on the water, so they plan to tread carefully. They find their canoe barely concealed, though it had been invisible to them just moments before in the dark. Tenderly, he pulls the boat down, making sure it's intact, checking the paint job, which is just a little bit chipped, but not bad, making sure the tarp is folded neatly up. He hands Alice the rucksack, and Alice is like, holy shit, what's in here? This is heavy. And Malcolm's like, I haven't had time to check. I wanted to wait until we were safe to look into it. Alice wraps a blanket around her shoulders, and they paddle off, cold air in their face. He worries they'll miss the Priory, or that they'll find it guarded or indeed impossible to break into, but it makes no matter because on they go, under the moon. Something changed during their fight with V between Alice and Malcolm. It seems that a wall of sorts had finally come down, and now they're friends.
0: I just love this. As you were saying earlier about their growing friendship, I just love this. They've gone through so much. By this point and like they at the beginning of these chapters had a disagreement right but they've come together and figured it out and resolved it. Now he's Mal.
1: I think it's, it's good that she's also seeing him for who he is and like why he's doing the silly things he does or the things the little like intricate things he does about Lyra like it's just because he's a kid you know mm-hmm. and he might not go about things in the most direct or best way in taking care of Lyra but like he cares and it's obvious and she sees that First person.
0: Yeah. Both of them see a light ahead, and Malcolm thinks it may just be the moon. And as if on cue, his spangled ring of light unfurls. It's familiar, and as it grows, it spirals around exactly what Alice had pointed out. It's a great building, gleaming white under the moon. It almost looked like a castle rising out of the water. But they realize it's a spire, and it's immense. Mal's spangled ring leaves him bit by bit, and they survey the building, trying to find a way in they find two men guarding the building having a cigarette and dressed in security of the holy spirit uniforms with a powerboat tied off at the base of the steps they also had rifles over their shoulders they decide that this is probably not the way to go in and then suddenly an idea comes to malcolm if this is the kitchen they would have a scullery like the Godstow priory with a big drain, and like this is where the nuns throw their washing up water so they decide to test the area, which has a big iron gate that they have to remove, and it's heavy as hell. He realizes that, well, they can't both go in, and commands Alice to stay in the boat and hold steady and stay warm.
1: Yeah, Malcolm pulls himself up the drain, and he's soaked to the skin, freezing, and Asta becomes an otter, trying to direct him. And this is kind of a similar, similar imagery we're going to get later when they have the actual Father Tem gate as well. But I love that he's passing below the water. He's kind of like going through a baptism to go get Lyra. Uh, hopefully the water cleanses his concussion on the way there. He lands and he's pretty scuffed up. Broken nails, skin knees. He crawls and Asta becomes some sort of night-dwelling beast clinging to his back and keeping watch. After a while of crawling, Malcolm starts to get scared. Thinking of how much stone is above him, he's getting pretty claustrophobic. Just in time, as he nears panic, he sees the light of the kitchen ahead and they finally reach dark bars of iron. There's no way through until Asta notices the hinges on the grate and he pulls himself together. First, he's freaking out. He's like, oh, God, we're going to die down here. We're not going to get Lyra. And Asta's like, get yourself together, man. Uh, they head through this hole toward the entrance.
0: And Asta was doing that for Malcolm, right? Throughout this whole time underneath, right? she's all like, oh, I can see it, I can see the end, because, I mean, A is whatever animal she turned into, she can see it better. But I, I like the idea that as his soul, she's the one who's giving him hope. Aw, she has to calm his ass down. Yeah. A moment later, they're into the scullery, which is not dissimilar from the godstow scullery. He huddles near the range to get warm and worries he'll never be warm again, and he'll blow his cover looking for Lyra. And then he remembers that Alice is outside waiting for them and feels even worse. So he gets a move on. He sees a wooden box. and He's like, "Ah, that might have held apples, but now it's going to hold Lyra. Oh, interesting. It used to hold apples, but now it's going to hold Eve. Um, Oh, I didn't even.
1: You're so clever.
0: You know, I didn't
1: think about that at all.
0: Every now and then. Malcolm lines it with some towels so that Lyra will stay dry as they go back down the drain. He hears only silence in the stone wall, so he decides it's now or never, tiptoeing down the stone corridor to find the back staircase. A bell rings and he hears a choir singing in the chapel. The singing gets louder, and to his horror, a line of nuns with hands pressed together and eyes lowered begin to walk toward him.
1: That's like some horror imagery. I I didn't put this together before, but like, do you just hear the... And they're just like walking toward him, like evil nuns. (laughs) Evil nuns, we're coming
0: for you, Malcolm. You live here now. Yeah, it's like the whole scene. I mean, that's the that's that's, Holman had some fucked
1: up experiences.
0: (laughs) (sighs) I mean, yeah, that actually might be from his memory. Who knows? Malcolm was caught with nowhere to go. He shivers and lowers his head, and a nun stops in front of him, asking who he is and what he's doing. He lies and says that he wet his bed and then he got lost sniffing and wiping his nose the nun just like slaps him on the side of his head and tells him to go upstairs and wash himself take an oil cloth and fresh blanket from the cupboard and go to bed they discuss punishment in the morning and it's interesting that they're all like oh poor malcolm he just got hit and i'm like okay andrew's a little shit but like malcolm definitely hit that boy way harder yeah absolutely um (laughs) more times
1: I would say it is a bummer he gets smacked because I'm sure his head is ringing. You know, he's been focusing yeah. on and off the whole time on, like, trying to stay focused with his concussion. Like, he's still like, his head is still dizzy. He's still dizzy. And I'm like, how are you doing this? I also love that they're like, you better go get an oil cloth and a blanket. And Malcolm's like, well, don't mind if I do. I will take one for Lyra. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, really works out for him. Yeah. After he snags the
1: oilcloth and blanket, he realizes, wow, they must have a generator because they have Embaric lights still. As he goes upstairs, the lights are a little dimmer, and he counts the doors to find the nursery. Asta and Malcolm hear a nun lightly snoring, but nothing more, so they head into the long room. Asta tells him to concentrate, to figure out which child is Lyra. Oh, this is kind of like the, the pine spray. Right? Like when Lyra has to figure out Seraphina's pine spray. That's the test.
0: Yeah. Yes. Great connection.
1: I didn't think about it. Now he has to figure out which child is the chosen one. So he goes. Mm. He goes to find the chosen one. He has a couple close calls. Can't find her. And suddenly he hears a noise of someone entering the room so he ducks and hides. He's freezing and he's shivering and Asta warms up his neck as a ferret while they discuss Lyra. These voices are talking about Lyra. Two of the sisters discuss that she's Lord Asriel's daughter, but they can't seem to figure out how she came to be in a cave with poachers and common thieves. I love that because last chapter, of course, was the poacher. And Andrew was the real poacher of the last chapter, not just those that Mm. were going out to hunt for the group. He illegally hunted Lyra and handed her off to the CCD. So, of course, it's ironic that these people are like, no, poachers and common thieves, when... The only poaching they were doing was hunting for food for hungry people and children. These people are poachers and common thieves right here.
0: Yeah, they are. They're like stealing children. That's thievery. Yeah,
1: and this will go on in our next episode, right? Because the Stolen Child theme comes back up with the fairy.
0: Great point. Well, turns out it made no matter as to who was in that cave because... They are like, oh, the group of thieves would be gone by the time someone went to interrogate. The nuns begin to speak to a priest, whom they address as father, and he says he'll take the child in the morning, but the nuns do not agree. Yes.
1: She's in our care now, and there she will remain. That is the rule of our order.
0: My authority outweighs the rule of your order. In any case, I should have thought that the one thing a sister of holy obedience ought to do was obey. I will take this child in the morning, and that is the end of it.
1: Some really strong themes there, right? That uh, the nuns may be strict and mean and evil and cruel, but they're still females in the society. And the priest uh, trumps them in that role, for sure. Yes. The man leaves, and one of the nuns remains by the crib for a few minutes. But slowly, she goes to the door. Malcolm sees her stop momentarily, and for a moment... He thinks she's looking straight back at him, and he's like, fuck, 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 fuck. But she keeps going and leaves. He thinks of Alice faithfully waiting outside and how lucky he is. Slowly, carefully, Asta's like, the nun's gone from the corridor, and immediately he tries to find Lyra. He can't find her at first, but then Asta finds her, and something's off. Asta can smell sweetness on her mouth, on all the children's mouths, because they're drugged.
0: it's interesting that the nun looks back and we know that she's looking back because it turns out she's tricked the priest. She's directed him to the wrong crib. And, and I guess that has to do, right, with what you're saying before that the nuns almost were the ones who were given the care of Lyra. And, and But beyond that, I do wonder if there's something else as to why she tried to trick the priest to keep Lyra. I don't know. Do they just crave that I mean, power? Maybe they know
1: that that prophecy about her, maybe there's word of it that they heard. Since they were supposed to keep her, they might know. And, you know, maybe they believe the word of the prophecy and the word that would revolve around their god more than the word of this douchebag priest.
0: Maybe. Or maybe they know that there's something important, because, like, Mm -hmm. the entirety of the Magisterium still doesn't know it
1: yet. I don't know. Like, if they think there's obviously something important about this girl, maybe they also are doing their duty for once to protect others and, like, keep yeah. her safe even if it's a harsh place maybe it's kind of like a misnomer in how they're treating it that like yes it's harsh but maybe Lyra would be safer with these nuns than she would be with the priest who was going to give her over to the magisterium
0: uh yeah she probably would have maybe there's a sense of light. honor still you know yeah or it's I mean, advantageous. Yeah, that's possible that they're just like that they think that they're doing well right mm-hmm. and being so mean which is it's own kind of evil in a way
1: yeah it is it's still evil to to have that treatment coincide with it
0: yeah it's almost more terrifying right because then those people can't be they don't know it's harder yeah, it's to convince lulled them lulled in into ways. a false
1: sense of security like these are my caretakers that I should respect and are actually taking care of me and keeping me safe from evil but also abusing me yeah there's no winning is what we're saying
0: yep <laughs> Especially because, as you said, right, they can smell drug on all the children's lips. So that's a a take on on their part regarding child-rearing. Lyra doesn't stir as they lift her out, and and Asta also lifts the sleeping pan in her mouth, and they silently leave, getting down to the scullery, settling Lyra into her little wooden box, and then out they go, freezing. Alice holds the boat steady. It's like, it's about fucking time, and she takes Lyra from him.
1: I love this passage. Alice is so cute in it it's great i got it steady don't hurry just bring it out slow and careful no hurry got the weight take your time turn around this way. i got i got, I got it and she slept through all this lazy little cow <laughs> come here sweetheart come to alice here mal sit down and put them blankets around you for god's sake get warm and eat this here i kept it from the cave if you got something in uh-huh. your belly it'll warm you up quicker She shoved a lump of bread and a piece of cheese into his hands, and he gobbled down a bit at once.
0: "Give me the paddle, he mumbled, and with another bit of bread and cheese in his mouth, the blankets around his shoulders and the paddle in his hand, he pushed away from the walls of the great white priory and brought the faithful canoe out once more onto the flood.
1: And that is chapter 20. That is it. We did three chapters this week for you, and... What a time! That's i uh, I'm glad that we got Lyra back because that was certainly a worry. Yep
0: yeah, it's it's a worry often throughout this uh, throughout this book. And do
1: you think they'd learn?
0: You think that they would? Um, <laughs> they all lose Lyra for a good three books, though, in the main series. So, yeah,
1: that's true. I mean, to be fair, she does <laughs> just like walk into another world, but.
0: Yeah, she's just like, fuck this, fuck adults, no parents. Um, Though, you know, we we, we touched on those uh, three main books just now, but we are also, uh, we're not really going to do a discussion this time. We're not going to talk about the secret commonwealth. We don't really have much to say.
1: My mother taught me that if you don't have anything nice to say (laughs) with how your thoughts from Well Sauvage connect eventually to the secret commonwealth, Again, and you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's what my mama taught me. So I'm sticking by it. I learned that
0: it. from Thumper. I learned that from Bambi. The movie <sighs> Bambi. Yes. Or, maybe it wasn't Thumper. I don't
1: know. Yeah, it's Bambi anyway, and Thumper. And Flowers. I,
0: remember, I didn't remember. Yeah, I think it was Flowers.
1: Well... Thank you all for listening in. I'm hoping next month we will have a discussion for you for sure, especially because I think we might have a guest with us next month. So stay tuned to our regular Song of Ice and Fire episodes throughout April to get a hint at that. Or, you know, if you want to get more hints at when those kind of things are coming up, I know we only do these episodes monthly until the end, so I know the information can be sparse, but you can get updated information over at our social media, we are on Twitter at Girls girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, and you can send us an email about the episode or about your thoughts on the books of dust over at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com.
0: Yes, and of course, if you want to keep up with whenever these episodes do come out and make sure that you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to us on any of the platforms where you can find our podcasts, such as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, where these are all hosted. Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, Overcast, um, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, amongst the many, many other platforms that we may be on that you can Google.
1: Yeah, and if you are on Patreon.com, we do have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. Handful of perks that you can choose from. Our $5 and above patrons in the Stranger tier get special episodes every month. Uh, $5 and up will get you every other month His Dark Materials special episodes and every other other month A Song of Ice and Fire. In April, we'll be releasing a very special episode on the Lost episode, the bottle episode with Asriel that got kind of tanked from Series 2. More to come on that soon. And hey, if you are a $10 or above patron in the Thunder tier or above, you do get access to our Discord where we do a monthly brunch and happy hour hangout. We have kind of a potluck presentation style thing that goes on, or we play some jackbox games, do some really fun giveaways, you name it. We're having a blast with those, and we kind of just chat all day on Discord. So if you're into that, come and see patreon.com slash canon.
0: Well, thank you everyone for tuning in this month and As we said, see you next month uh, for both our Patreon episode and for La Belle Sauvage, where we, again, hope to have some exciting, exciting things for that episode. I've been one of your hosts, Eliana. And
1: I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. See you next time. Goodbye.